So I want to share a story with you, and it might sound like I'm being prideful here. I'm trying not to be, but I want to share this story with you because I think it um, helps us understand something. Um, what that is, we'll find out. Um, but so growing up, right, did a lot of baseball pitching and everything. Uh, I told you that started when I was eight years old. That's when I started pitching, started taking lessons. I did this weekly, um, usually a Wednesday or Thursday every night of my life or every week of my life until um, I graduated from high school. So about 10 years I did this. Um, when I was 16, I moved to a different school and started to, um, it was a, a small Christian school in Stockton, California. And the school had won the year before their, um, their league. And I thought, hey, we're going to be a good team because they lost one player and they're getting a pitcher. Um, and I was pretty good. And so we started playing. I got into a lot of, um, I butt heads with people a lot. Um, and so I butted heads with the, the coach uh, because the coach had the, the thought of you do it my way and there is no other way. And so he told me, you need to change your whole pitching style um, to do what I want you to do. He's like, I've trained these other pitchers, and they're wonderful pitchers. You need to change your pitching style. And I told him I will never change my pitching style because I've been doing this since I was eight. And we've spent, so every um, uh, lesson was $35. So $35 times 52 times eight. Do, yeah, you can figure that out. Okay, that's a lot of money that was spent. And so I told him, no, I'm not changing um, the way I do this. And I'm glad I didn't because um, every single one of the pitchers hurt their arms to where they, they could barely pitch afterwards. Because there's two ways of pitching. If you, basically, there's two ways of pitching if you don't know this. There's with your upper body, there's with your lower body. I pitch with my lower body. Um, and that saves your arm. Um, and so if you watch major league pitchers, the ones that are the starters pitch with their lower bodies. And the ones with their, that are like the closers, they usually pitch with their upper bodies. They're usually the faster ones. But usually the, the, the um, starters are the ones that are a little bit slower but have more control and they have a bunch of different pitches. So anyways, um, but what was great was, even though I always butted head with this coach, um, every time that I was called upon the pitch, I had to say that I felt like I did really good. Um, at the end of my two years there, I had the most strikeouts, the least amount of walks, the lowest ERA um, of any other pitcher in those two years. But I didn't have the most wins. And there's a reason why. And I was sitting with, uh, this was funny, at the end of my uh, senior year, me and my buddy, who was another pitcher, uh, we got to hang out in the bullpen together because we worked the same nights. Um, I was a starter, he was a closer. And so when the other starter was up, we just hung out in the bullpen and we just talked trash about everything. Um, we would yell at, we would heckle the um, players on the other team. Um, and we would just, just spend time, and it was really fun. Um, and so one night, we, we had um, the scorekeeper 
and we weren't in the bullpen, we were just in the regular dugout. And we started going through all of the, the games. And we started tallying them up because at the end of the season, they, we had an awards ceremony and the best, right, got awards. This is before everyone got their own participation trophy. So we were looking it up. I wanted to see because we were, you know, we were always in, com in competition with each other. Um, and I always wanted to beat him. Well, I had an advantage. I usually pitched uh, five to six innings, and he only got one or two. So I always beat him. I mean, there was no doubt in that. Um, but we would always do this, and we were just trying to figure out, okay, who is the best? And so we went through, and we figured out, okay, here's the ERA. Here's the, um, and if you don't know what that is, it's earned runs, right? And so the lower your ERA, the better. Um, and so we're figuring all these different things out, and there's a lot that goes into ERAs, like uh, errors and things like that, hits, and what, what constitutes a hit and what con doesn't constitute a hit. Anyways, um, and I felt pretty confident. I'm like, I'm going to get the best award because I have the most strikeouts, the lowest ERA, the less walks, but I had the least amount of wins. And then we've, we realized, as we're going through this, why that was. Every single team I pitched again was a harder team. We realized that all these teams, once we started putting them all together, these were all the hard teams in the league that I had been pitching against. And then I thought about it, and we had, that year, we had played against this team called Brookside Christian. And in California, you have five divisions, and Division 5 is the lowest. And so we were Division 5, we were a real small school, and Division 4 was above us, and Brookside was in Division 4. And so every year, our school would play this other school because we were in the same town, and it was kind of like a little rivalry. And you know, have you ever had a rivalry where you had a rivalry and the other people barely knew you existed? <laughs> like that was this rivalry. They would beat our school every single year in every single sport. So this year, um, the coach, again, we didn't like each other. And so he's like, you're going to pitch against this team. He found out later from his son um, that he's like, he put you in those, um, those teams that were harder so that you would lose. Like, this was the purpose of putting me against these teams. So he wanted me to play against this Brookside Christian to humble me. Because I, I felt like I was the best. And so we played against this team. We played seven innings. And we lost by one run. We had the most strikeouts of any time we've ever played that team. Um the lowest walks we've ever had against that team. And we lost because of an error. <coughs> and if you've heard stories from me before, do you know where that error might have come from? The outfield. And I hate the outfielders. <laughs> They're always the ones that mess up. But the error came from the outfield, and a run scored, and that's how we lost that game. So at the end of the year, I was very sure... I will be the best because I have most strikeouts, lowest ERA, least amount of walks, even though I didn't have the most wins. But I felt confident that I would be the best. 
So I'm sitting there with all the rest of our teammates and all of our families waiting for the different things. I only have one category because I'm not good in anything else. <laughs> so they call up and they, they call the, the other pitcher, the other starter, as the best pitcher of that year. And from the rest of the team, you hear this, what? I mean, everyone looked around. And it was because I didn't have the most wins. And so after that, I kind of felt real upset. I'm thinking, man, this guy's a jerk. I really like to knock him outside the head. But you couldn't because he was about this tall. So, you know, right over his head. Um, but I felt really upset after that. And my dad took me aside. And he's like, I understand why you're upset. And yeah, the whole situation's messed up. He's like, but did you do what you were supposed to do when you were called to do it? I said, well, yeah, I gave my all in every single one, and I worked really hard every single day to make sure that I did the best. And he says, so why are you complaining? You, do, you did what you were supposed to do, and everyone understands that. So you need to be proud of what you did. Don't worry about the award. The award is meaningless if it comes because things were shady to get the award. And so that kind of stuck with me. So for the rest of into college, I started thinking, you know, it's not about what I get at the end. It's about did I do my job when I was called upon? And I, except for one time in, uh, in the later years, um, I felt like every single time when I was called to do a good job to pitch, that that's what I did. That one other time was when we played Masters College and we're playing the B team. And the first pitch I hit has not landed yet. I felt like I could have done better than that. But it's this idea of when we're called upon that we need to be doing what we're supposed to, that that's what we're going to talk about today. So if, you're, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be looking at um, several verses here, um, several dozen. And as we do... We're starting to move into section 4 of Matthew. And so, real quick, let's summarize sections 1 and 2. Um, sections 1 and 2, very simple. Uh, first section is, who is Jesus? Uh, this happens. First seven chapters of Matthew focuses on who Jesus is. Uh, he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the prophet like Moses. He's the king like David. But it's also that he's the fulfillment of prophecies that God comes down um, and so, who is Jesus? So at the end of those seven chapters, you should have this basic understanding of who Jesus is. And so then, in the next two sections, from chapters 8 through chapter 13, you have this other um, question that gets answered, which is, okay, who are Jesus' disciples? Who are those that follow? Because at the end of chapter 7, there's a, a clear understanding that those who are followers of Jesus, those who put Jesus' words into practice, are Jesus' followers. And so for the next um, two sections of Matthew, we really dig in and get to understand what is a disciple. And so we talked about this kind of sum summing it up, summarizing it, that a disciple of Jesus is first and foremost someone that accepts him as their Savior. And then the second part, that's the section two. The section three is, it's those who are 
good soil who understand the worth of the kingdom. And so just this understanding. So if we understand who Jesus is and we say, well, I want to follow Jesus. Okay, well, you need to accept Jesus as your Savior, right? And then pursue him. You have to actually put Jesus' words into practice. And so these three sections um, end with the death of John the Baptist. And that death is really important because as we move into the next um, sections, we can see that this death changes things within the gospel. Not in the sense of um, that all of a sudden Jesus has a different ministry, but rather the, the focus changes. It goes from, okay, who is Jesus? Who are his disciples? To a full-fledged, what is the kingdom? Where are we going? And we see this transition with the parables of the kingdom. What is the kingdom? And so all this is transitioning into the next section, which is pretty long. It's chapters 14 through 18. And so we're going to go through all this. And the first, this week and next week are linked together because they follow each other, not just in chronology, but also in the, idea, in the ideas that are here in. So if you have your Bibles, let's read this whole section. And you're going to hear two parts that are pretty, pretty popular, pretty well known. Um, and we're going to see them because the whole purpose of these summers, summer studies is to, to see the overarching topics here. That is, a lot of times we look at certain things and we look at just sections of the scriptures and we can take away teachings from that, but it's written to be heard as a whole. It's written to be followed one right after the other. So, we're going to read this whole section and then talk about it. So here we go. Chapter 14 of Matthew, starting verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, talking about the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew by boat privately in a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides the women and children. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while his, as he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up to the mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sing, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. 
You of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? And then they climbed into the boat. The wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gensaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought out their sick to him and begged him to let the sick, uh, let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. All right, so we have this whole situation. We have three situations that are going on here. Um, and so you, the first situation you have is the 5,000, right? The 5,000 plus. And it just tells us there's about 5,000 men, not to mention all the women and children. So you could say um, there could be 15,000 plus, depending on how many kids were there, right? So a lot of people. So this is a huge situation. Now, there's a lot of parallels here um, with the Old Testament. You have... Um, you know, the things like uh, the manna in the desert uh, situation. Uh, but what we're, we're not going to be focusing on that. Instead, what we're going to be looking at is, what is Jesus, what is happening with Jesus? So last week we talked about the death of John the Baptist, right? That sometimes God calls us into these situations where we need to die, Right? Time and time again, we see throughout church history that God doesn't call us into comfort. That he calls us into situations where we're going to be stretched. We're going to be, sometimes our bodies are going to be broken. But it's all to bring us closer to him. Yet, here we have a situation where John dies. And what is Jesus' response? It says, when he heard this, he withdrew by, by boat privately to a solitary place. The death of John is the catalyst to Jesus moving away to be by himself. Now, one of the things I think is really interesting as we read through that, you see that later on, a bunch of people, right after this, a bunch of people find out where Jesus is and they come to him. So Jesus is dealing with John's death. And here, a bunch of people are coming to him for their own personal gain, right, to be healed. And it says that Jesus has compassion on them. One of the things that's interesting is we read in um, John that Lazarus dies. A good friend of Jesus dies. And Jesus comes, and as soon as he comes and he sees all the people, it says that Jesus weeps. And there's a lot of speculation on why does Jesus weep. Um, my speculative part on it is Jesus is weeping because of the reality of the situation. Both that this is Lazarus, someone that he knows, but also that these people are weeping. They're in mourning, right? They're in distress um, because of death. And death is an unnatural thing. Um, it's natural for us because everyone dies, but it's an unnatural thing in the grand scheme of creation. Uh, created us not to die, to live with him. Yet, why do we fear death? Because something's wrong about it. The taking of someone away from us, right? It feels wrong. And so, it makes sense that people mourn and weep. But I love how the fact that this situation has made Jesus go off by himself just to be in a solitary place. 
And this really speaks to who Jesus is. He is the, if we're reading, right, if we're following along in Matthew, that he is the God who come down. He's the fully God, fully man. And so he's not just here going, oh, you, you ants, right? Because this, this could be something that we think about God a lot. I've heard people say, well, why did God allow this to happen, this bad thing to happen? Why do I have to go through this heartache? Why does this pain, this suffering have to happen? And we see a moment where there's pain and suffering because of something that God called John to. John's the one, or God's the one that called John to become a prophet. God's the one that set him on that path to where he would have to stand before Herod and say, what you're doing is wrong. And that led to his... And here's God responding to that. Hearing it and deciding he needs to go off. But as he does this, there are people that are still hurting. But, and it says that he has compassion on. I just love this little tiny part because it speaks to me volumes of who God is. God fills our pain and he still cares. We go through a lot. And God isn't an unfeeling God. He understands our pain. He understands the suffering. And so he has compassion. But then it continues on. And there's a, the crowds there. And what do the disciples tell him? You need to get rid of these people. Dismiss them so they can go eat. Right? Which is logical. Mm-hmm. Right? If you've ever been out somewhere and you didn't pack a lunch, your stomach starts growling. It's like, okay, we need to get lost, right? We need to go and get some food. And so the disciples are like, we have our provisions, but we don't have enough for all these people. So Jesus, you need to send them off. And what does Jesus say? No, he doesn't say that. He says, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now this is, I think this is, we can't skip over that. This is a challenge to the disciples. Up until this point, you have chapters 1 through 7. Jesus is explaining, right? We're learning about who Jesus is. We're learning about, okay, um, he is the God come down. Okay, we get that. Okay, disciples, okay, you need to go and do, right? You need to be those who put Jesus' words into practice. And... They do that, actually, in chapter 10. So in Matthew chapter 10, you get this. Um, Jesus commissions, we talked about this, this, is the little commission, and he says to them, as you go, proclaim the message, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Okay, that's the message. And then he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely have received, freely give. Then he sends them out, and they return. And then they stick with him. He teaches them deeper stuff. And now, here's this crowd that's hungry. And they said, send them away. He says, they don't need to be sent away. Instead, feed them. What is Jesus doing? He's challenging them. Put into practice. You've been commissioned to do this type of stuff. So do it. Let's see it. What's their response? We only have loaves, five loaves and two fish. 
That's all we have, Jesus. We don't have much. Do you think there's a disconnect here between what Jesus is trying to get them to do and what they're looking at? How easy it is for us to look at the situation around us and say, ah, we don't have enough. No, you can't do this. God, we need something else. I, 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 just, I just find this so funny. Here's these guys that are seeing so much done by Jesus and do it. We don't have enough. And so what does Jesus do? He takes it. Right? He takes it on. And he makes the, um, asks the blessing on the bread and the fish. It goes out, it comes back even more. I think the disciples missed something here. I think that they were supposed to be the ones that did this. But they didn't. So Jesus did it. But then what's interesting is what happens right after. Did they sit down and Jesus is like, okay, let me explain what went wrong. No, it says in verse 22, immediately. So they get back the, the baskets full. They see the blessing that has happened. And then Jesus, it says, immediately puts them in a boat, sends them off, and dismisses the crowd. I don't know if you, they do this now in jobs and things like that. You have an exit in, interview or a yearly review where you get to, okay, what went wrong? Right? Um, we do this, we call it debriefing um, with the, the, the teens sometimes we do this with the youth leadership. Um, we do this when we do an event and we come together as a group and we say, okay, what was good, what was wrong? And we figure out, you know, what can we do better? Jesus doesn't do that. You saw the blessing? Get out here. <laughs> Get onto the boat. Go. And then it says he goes and he does the solitary thing. So he does this all while dealing with John's death. He gives the disciples an opportunity to actually put into practice what he's told them to do. And then when it comes to a blessing, as soon as they see the blessing, what is happening? go into the boat. And then the next situation happens. So it's about 6 to 12 hours, right? This is approximately the time frame because there it's it's getting dark when Jesus feeds the 5000 and when we see Jesus walking on the water it's around dawn. So about 12 hours somewhere in there within that time frame is passed. And what's happening? The wind is kicked up. The waves are going everywhere. The, and Marcus says they're fearful. This is not just a, 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 a simple storm. This is really bad. And what do they see? They think it's a ghost walking on the water. And this isn't a simple like, um, I got to tell you, so uh, several years back, I watched a, um, a documentary on trying to figure out a natural way to explain a lot of the miracles in the Bible. And one of them, they got this um, magician to walk on water. And so they started up and they show him do it. And he walked, it looks like he's walking on water. And he comes back at the end of it and he says, it took, uh, he said somewhere around 15 people to 
make this trick happen, and it was all done in the pool. He's like, I don't know how Jesus could have done this on a, a, a sea, on a, a big old lake with wind and waves going on. And so there's a situation where he's walking on this water and they're freaking out because, oh, there's a ghost. And what does he say? It's me. Take courage. And I love the response of Peter. Lord, if it is you, tell me to come out to you and I'll walk. And what does Jesus say? One word. Come. One word. Come. Get out here, Peter. Come on. And what does Peter do? Gets out there. Starts walking. I love it because you have these two situations right next to each other. One is, Jesus says, you guys feed them. All we have is this. The other one is walking on water. Jesus, if it's you, call me out there. Come. Which one's harder? Like, in my mind, I started thinking, which one of these is a harder miracle? To me, the walking on water is harder. Here's the reason why. In the Old Testament, God supplied the manna. He would supply the needs of the Israelites as they're going through the desert. There are two situations of water. Both of them are walking on dry ground. The waters part and they walk on dry ground. This is not dry ground. This is not waters parted. This is crazy water everywhere. Which is harder? That God would supply food or that you'd walk on water? I would think the walking on water would be just a little bit harder. But I love the fact because even though I, a lot of times we, we focus on the next thing that happens, Peter looks at the wind and the waves and what happens? He starts sinking. We focus on that and say, man, Peter's a loser. But how many of, how many of the 12 got out of the boat? Only one. And so in a moment where in one situation none of them had faith, we see progress. At least one of them had enough faith to say, if you call me, I'll come out there. Now that faith faltered and he started sinking. But Jesus was right there to grab him. Well, see, that's the thing is his faith was there and then it moved. And he went. He looked at. The, so is the person that he was having faith in changed, right? He went from Jesus, I have faith in you, to I need to have faith in myself because I need to fix this. But in that, he still had the perfect response. He starts sinking, and he could have just said, "I'm doomed," but instead, he says. Lord, save me. And Jesus grabs him. And yes, he pulls him out and he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This is the theme that has already happened. The 5,000 
the disciples were doubting. But at least Peter got out of the boat. And I think as we're seeing the progression of Matthew, this is a huge moment within the scriptures. Because not just that the disciples, yeah, they failed, and we have someone that at least attempted, but we have Jesus not giving up. The 5,000 get fed. Jesus sends them off. Does Jesus just say, you guys are done. I'm done with you. I'm going my own way. No, he walks towards the same direction he sent them. When Peter starts sinking, does he just say, well, hopefully you can float. No, he grabs them. And st- I mean, he still corrects them. Why did you doubt? You have little faith. Why did you doubt? But then he takes them and puts them into the boat. And I love this because it's still, you still have that, that compassionate Jesus still there. And so often we would just, someone messes up and we would just push them to the side and say, you know, I'm done with your, your silly antics and you're not doing what you're supposed to. And we just kick them to the side. But yet Jesus still comes back. He still reaches out. He still saves them, still brings them into the boat. And then they get to the other side, and what happens then? There's a big old crowd waiting for them. They just wanted to see Jesus, touch Jesus, because maybe they heard the story of the woman who had um, bleeding for 12 years, and she just touched the hem of his garment and was healed. And that's what they're asking, too. Just let us touch the edge of your cloak. And they were healed. And you have this... To me, this is what I see. You have these crowds juxtaposed against the disciples. These crowds are just constantly looking for healing. They're looking for food. They're looking for all these things that are just these these needs that need to be met. And what does Jesus call his disciples to? To do. You feed them. You walk on water. A lot of times in our lives, this is what we do with God. Is God just give, 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 please. I need this, I need this, I need this. And God becomes the genie in the lamp. God, here's my prayer. I need it fulfilled. And so, this understanding that, no, no, no. The disciple of Jesus just doesn't say, gimme, gimme, gimme. But Lord, what would you have of me? Call me, if that's really you, Lord, call me to you. If you want me to do it, call me to you. I love, you know that song, Jesus Take take the Will? Yes. Okay. I think too often we get into this mindset of that. Jesus Take the Will. Um, I've heard another one, let go and let God. Sometimes God says, take the will. you got to actually do it. Now, this isn't like, okay, in my own power, I get to do this. No, this is by the authority of Christ, 
these disciples were commissioned to go and do. And so in the presence of Christ, he's saying, do. Sometimes we have to do. Not just say we do things, not just say, oh yeah, let's, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a follower of Jesus. No, we need to actually do. And that word is abdicate. That means to give up. So too often disciples abdicate their role. God, I can't do this. I'm not, I'm not called to do this. I don't have the strength to do this. Well, sometimes we just need to say, okay, God, if you call, I'll come. If you say it, then I'll do it. We can't give up that responsibility. That's what it means to be a, a disciple. That's important to know because later on when we get to chapter 18, if all of us take our responsibility as disciples to do as God leads us to do, chapter 18 will make sense. But if we have this very, this idea like the crowds that are just in constant gimme, 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 God, Chapter 18 is going to make no sense at all. It's going to feel like God's being a jerk. But when we understand what a disciple is and the fact that God has called us to do, not just have things done for us, then as we get closer to chapter 18, things start making more and more sense. Because he's calling disciples, not just as individuals, but as a community of believers together. And so this is a huge thing. You know why this is this is my theory. You know why churches don't are not healthy or they are have a lot of conflict is because there's a lot of gimme 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 and not a lot of what can I do. And so I've I've seen churches where they're just like at each other's throat. I thank God that we don't have that, at least not that I know of. But we can't, the way it's, it's easy to fall into it, give me, give me, give me. And so what can I do, God? And so Jesus is calling us to exercise our faith. Not just to say, I have faith. But to actually do it. Because our faith is in the one who says, put my words into practice. So how can we say that we have faith in the one who says, put my words into practice, if we're not putting words into practice, right? And so this whole idea that we need to be exercisers of faith, not just takers in, but actually exercisers of our faith. And so my challenge for you this week is, um, sometimes God, okay, Routinely, God will say things to me like, Jeremiah, you need to do this. And routinely, I'll say to God, can we push it off till tomorrow? Um, like this is, I'm being honest with you, like this is, God, there's other things I need to take care of. In fact, in the last two months, there have been things that God said, you need to do this. I'm like, God, I just, can I just push that off? And he's like, no. And then he just, he pushes me out of the boat to do it. And 
the things I thought were important turned out not to be as important. But those things I, did, I wanted to push off were the most important things. And so my challenge for you this week is go in front of God and just say, God, is there something that I'm putting off that you've called me to? Some of you might already know what that is. You might be like, oh, I already know. God, is there something I'm pushing off that you have called me to? Kick me out of the boat. If you say go, if you say come, I will go. That's my challenge for you this week. Because that's why I see in the scriptures, that's what God has called me to. Jeremiah, take the will and do it. Don't just say you believe, but actually put into practice. Um, after that whole thing with the, um, the baseball team and everything, I'm still friends with uh, several of the guys. I, I, I've enjoyed watching that. Uh, his name's Jonathan. Um, my pitching buddy um, grow up. Um, and he has a family, and it's, it's great to see and watch. Um, uh, his, his father just passed away. Uh, uh, oh, it's been a year now. Uh, that was hard because his dad was a real man of God, real nice guy. Um, and you know what? We, we never talk about baseball. Never talk about baseball. Because the baseball wasn't important. <laughs> It turns out. What it did was it built us together. Every time I went out there and, and played, I thought, I'm, it's me, right? And I didn't realize that I was being bonded with my, with friends. Uh, doing what, and so often, when we do what God has called us together, it's not so much the goal of getting it done, but rather the building of the church. It's done. So I want to challenge you to step into what God is calling you to do. Because through that, you'll be built together with other people. The church will be strengthened. And I just don't mean like this body of believers, but the church as a whole will be strengthened. And we can be, bring more glory to God through all of it. That's really why, one of the reasons why tonight we're having this worship time. Is because so often, especially in a church service, there's a lot of things coming from this direction, right? The music comes from this direction, the, the message comes from this direction, and a lot of times it's just a receive. And so tonight, the whole purpose of tonight is to give. Give testimony to what God is doing in your life. Have prayer. If you, if you want prayer for something, you know, we will pray for you. It's just a, a time of worship together because we are called to encourage and to build each other up. And so that's why we're doing it tonight. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Because without you, I mean, where would we be? One, we wouldn't be created, so there would be just, we'd be gone. Lord, we, we'd be so far away from you without you sending Jesus to, to take on our infirmities, to take on our, the penalty for sin. Lord, we just, we praise you because of everything you do for us. It's, it's a constant 
overflow of blessing. Even when we see all the dark things, all this stuff like this monkeypox stuff and um, the inflation and, and governments and all this stuff, it, it seems overwhelming. It, you, you pour out blessings left and right. And so, Lord, we just thank you for that. Jesus, thank you for for sacrificing yourself on our behalf, that you have called us into this relationship with you. Something that we don't deserve, but you generously give to us. Lord, help us to put your word into practice, that we wouldn't just be the hearers of James, but we would be the doers. That we wouldn't just have it pass through our earlobes, but that we would incorporate it into our lives and actually follow through. Lord, help us to love you by following your command. And we ask that you move by your Holy Spirit, that we will be empowered and strengthened to do the things you have called us to. Lord, we know that you don't call anyone unless you equip them. So, Lord, equip us to do what you have called us to do, that we may be useful in your kingdom, sharpen us like the arrows in a quiver, ready to be shot out. And so, Lord, we just ask this all, in the precious name of Jesus, that we may worship you and follow you rightly not in our own strength but in the power and the might of the holy spirit we ask this in your son's name amen